Welcome to Kale and Cohen's Kooky Quarantine. I'm Seamus Campbell. I'm Ben Cohen. And we are joined today by Rebecca Pinn, the Secretary of the New York, of the Young Democrats of America. How are you doing, Rebecca? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. Living the I dream. You, I think you are the highest <laughs> ranking person in YDA we've had on the show at this point. Uh, power is an illusion. I don't really think the ranking means anything. So, I mean, I mean if, if it you, makes... <laughs> Objectively, like, it's not like anyone has respect for anyone else in our organization. So, you know, that's sort of a moot point. We did also rename it, like, the president's dog. So that's proof. <laughs> and, of course, he was so deferential and appreciative of that. <laughs> and that's why he regularly still calls the dog manhole and doesn't get actively angry at us when we do it. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here and uh, happy to be the highest ranking national officer you've had on from White Really Day. prestige. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's been, been waiting for me to, to show up. It, it adds <laughs> an air of legitimacy that we've really been missing. You know, we've done this for several months now, but. Uh, if, if I'm part of it, it's likely not legitimate. Um, apologies. <laughs> now all we need is like your ability to create memes for us. And then like, we'll actually go mainstream. You know, I've lately been feeling really old. And I will say my ability to create memes and get people excited from them does make me feel there's some youth cred. But then I've had people from the YDMA, so we're going to have to Massachusetts, be like, Rebecca, you're using like really old memes. Like I'm using elder millennial memes as opposed to Gen Z memes because I'm not on TikTok or Snapchat. So I just have no, I, I'm using like yesteryear memes. <laughs> like as my people face. need to appreciate the classics. <laughs> Which actually is like perfectly timed because we're recording this on November 21st and last night the new uh, like series of Animaniacs came out. Oh, really? Yes, on Hulu. So that's that's one for us. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. I watched two episodes this morning. <laughs> is it like the classics? It's basically Animaniacs, but for 2020. That's fine. Okay. That, that seems works. appropriate. I've oh, had things. some friends, mostly ones with children, who have already started watching it and say decent things about it. I so don't <laughs> have kids, so I don't have that excuse. But really, why has that stopped me? When does one need excuses else? to watch cartoons? It's 2020. All rules are out the window. Um, the new trend now in fashion, we athleisure is too dressed up. It's now loungewear. That mm -hmm. is the new fashion fashion trend cartoon like just nothing like, yeah. I don't know at work I feel like everyone's eating in meetings all day things that would be like very poo-pooed upon are now just accepted yeah like I'm wearing pajama pants right now I the only reason them. I'm wearing a normal like sweater today and not a hoodie is because I'm like actually going to see a friend after this look I'm, at you I'm all fancy and kind of one up us with having a social life I'm a jerk <laughs> um so to be fully transparent mask <laughs> to be fully transparent, I came on here because I've been very stressed out the last, or very angry the last week and a half. And I was like, I need an outlet to vent because I've been texting everyone the same things over and over again. And I feel guilty. And I'm like, wait, there's a venue I can vent about this mm -hmm. that will go out to potentially dozens of people. <laughs> so thank it's you for having me on to vent. <laughs> I think the moment we saw you just saying something about how you were annoyed about what's been going on with the mass dems. 
was like, okay, we weren't having her on. There's clearly some stories here. Well, yeah, she just like basically asked us on Facebook. We're like, yeah, you know, we're always looking for uh, guests that are not like totally crazy. <laughs> not that that stopped us before. Mm-hmm. We actually got one of your board, former board members to uh, believe that her cat is a CIA agent. So <laughs> we got her to believe. We exposed her to the truth. <laughs> so, I mean, why don't we dive right into this, Rebecca? Tell us, just kind of build this up how you want, but tell us what all went down with the Mass Dems reorg. Okay, so I think I need to give a little bit of background on um, why I was so upset that last not the Thursday from a couple of days ago, but the Thursday from, I think it was November 12th, um, there was a chair's election. So according to, I think it's Massachusetts state law, potentially, um, we need to elect our party chair within 10 days of the presidential election or after, within 10 days after the presidential election, which has so many issues in and of itself. Don't even get me started, but yeah. that's what we have to do. So this is every four years. Um, and, uh, Gus Bickford, who is the, he was reelected that night and he was the previous, he was the incumbent, uh, was running for reelection. And there were two people uh, challenging, challenging him. One was Mike Lake, who I was helping with his campaign. And the other was Bob Massey, who um, is uh, the environmentalist in Massachusetts. He ran for, he ran for uh, governor, uh, lost the primary in 2018, but also he ran for lieutenant governor in 94. And then Mike Lake also ran for lieutenant governor, um, I think in 2014. Um, so, you know, people with a lot of political experience, um, but it was, it's from what I've learned, I've learned a lot of mass Dems history that, uh, an incumbent in, tw- in the last 25 years has a lot. So, um, you know, it's an uphill battle to, to, with any race, but, um, this race in particular, I think I was particularly upset about because, you know, it's one thing when you feel like someone's not doing a good job. Um, there's, there's the classic, you know, things of like, you're not raising enough money. You're not, we're not getting enough voters registered as Democrats. We're not doing what we should be doing. There's, there's those aspects. And there's the aspects of you did something wrong. You violated our charter. You've lost the trust of the public. We can't, this is the uh, reelecting. This person is not the right thing to do for our party. So there's, you know, I think people assume that I'm on like, I think they're conflating. Like I, you know, I was really into the the primary for Markey and Joe Kennedy. I was a Markey person. At the end of the day, if Ed Markey had lost, I would have voted for Joe Kennedy and been fine. Like I have nothing personal. I have no personal vendetta against <laughs> against Joe Kennedy. I think he would have been a fine senator. I just happen to like Markey more. We weren't in that situation. To me, it was very clear that this was a situation of something bad happened, like ethically bad happened, and this person's facing no repercussions. Um, but I think what's more upsetting is like if you so peel back, for those of us that don't know the history, like what did what happened? So let me peel back all the layers. So I realize I'm talking a lot. Um, it's fine with us. <laughs> so to peel back the layers, um, I think there's three things we need to talk about. There is what is the purpose of a state party? And then from there, what is the purpose of the chair? If we know what the purpose of a state party is, then what is the purpose of the chair? And then how, does the, how is the party structured to keep everything in check? Um, so to just give people an example, to give people a little background, what happened over the summer um, was a big brouhaha where, uh, or it wasn't a big brouhaha, it was a scandal. Um, it was one of those weird situations where I knew every single person involved, but luckily was not involved at all myself. I was, in, I should be transparent. I was interviewed for a report that was created. Um, my interview was absolutely useless because I provided no information, but my name came up because people knew me. Uh, but basically over the summer, to give as quick a summary as I can, 
Um, the College Democrats of Massachusetts, uh, we were privately going to send Alex Morse, who was running um, a primary against Richie Neal in the first congressional district of Massachusetts. He's the head of the Ways and Means Committee, I think. So he's a pretty powerful uh, congressman from Massachusetts, uh, but many people feel he is not progressive enough given the area and also not doing enough with the, with the power of his seat. So Alex Morse, who is, he's a young Democrat himself. He's, um, he's def I think he's in 31, 32. He's the mayor of Mount, he's been the mayor of, Mount Hol of Holyoke for like a decade. He's like beloved there. Um, so he was running against Neil. Um, college Democrats was going to send him a letter basically saying, we don't want you coming to our events anymore. Um, I'll go into a little bit about more of the contents of the letter, but just to, they, they were gonna send him a letter. That letter got leaked. So it got leaked uh, to a college newspaper. I don't know all the details of which paper, I'm sorry. Got leaked to a college newspaper and then it became this big scandal. And the reason why they asked him not to come was they basically said he was making uh, students feel uncomfortable. So to add more context to this, um, Alex Morris is an openly gay man. He's an up and coming politician um, out of Western Mass, uh, has a big bright future ahead of him and still does. And the, the way this, what ended up happening was there were, um, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this, but basically it was like, well, why, who, you know, there's always a who leaked the letter. No one knows who leaked the letter, but it's also, the way that the letter was interpreted by the media was that he was doing like, there's a difference between someone saying like, you're making us uncomfortable versus like you were sexually assaulted someone or there was lack of consent. There was nothing like that. It was, you're making some students uncomfortable. It was then discovered that there were potentially malicious people involved in bringing him down. Um, there's more to this report about what happened, but ultimately the bigger issue was um, Ultimately, what happened was is that there was this scandal broke out. Alex Morse, um, for a few days, was deemed this predator, which is a very homophobic. Um, there's like a lot of homophobic tropes around gay men being sexual predators, and he's not. <laughs> and it's very upsetting, you know, it's to a lot of uh, my friends in the gay community who are seeing this very up-and-coming politician be really taken down by these false rumors. Um, and then it's discovered that college Dems, prior to sending this letter to Alex had gone to the Massachusetts Democratic Party and sought advice. So, um, and in the words of the College of Democrats president, she wanted to go to responsible adults to help them figure out what to do. So uh, the College uh, Democrats, uh, Massachusetts, College Democrats, Massachusetts president went to Gus Bickford, this was over the summer prior to the release of this letter and said, um, according to the report, they were already in planning on sending a letter saying, we wanna send this letter, what should we do? Um, there's a lot of he said, she said in all this, but ultimately what the report found was that Gus told them to send the, to, to make this letter public, to go on the record with the press, which is at worst or at best, just incompetence and at worst malicious because he's trying to get, he's a supporter of Neil and he had told Morse actually not to run against um, Congressman Neil. Um, and it created this huge scandal and it ended up finding out that Alex Morse had done nothing wrong. Um, he's a, a single openly gay man who, um, you know, he's allowed to date, like that's an okay thing to do. Um, but that at the time, Gus Bickford, the party chair had interfered with this primary by giving them bad advice. And again, he should have told them not, he would make a phone call, <laughs> but also gave bad advice. He interfered with the primary, which is you cannot be doing if you're a chair. Um, he 
again, very upsetting to members of the LGBT community. He was like spreading a, this homophobic trope that gay men are predators. It's, you know, obvious, I don't think Gus is a homophobic person, but I think there's, you know, these unintended consequences of what you do. So there's this whole scandal. It ultimately finds out that um, through this report, they hired, an, the Mass Dems hired a private investigator to investigate this. Um, there was just, once it all got sussed out through the media, but also through this report, it was found that Alex had done nothing wrong. Gus had effectively broken our charter and bylaws. He, I feel, you know, College Gems did what the right thing, which is they went to the responsible adults. And in this case, it's people who've been involved in party politics for 20, 30, 40 years saying, what should we do? And they were let down and I think thrown under the bus. Um, and that he lied to the party. So meanwhile, all this stuff breaks out. It's, you know, all the media, you know, once this letter's leaked, it's in the media, what's going on. Gus tells Mass Dems um, members, so state committee members, and I'm one of them, there's 430 of us, or I should say 432 of us. Um, I was not involved, I didn't do anything. So he lied to us. So not only did, you know, so there's that, so that's that whole scandal. I did a pretty horrific job uh, describing it, um, but. <laughs> I'm just curious, is like, was there any sort of, like impetus for the college Democrats to want to do these things to Mayor Morris or was just the the sense from the text messages that got leaked in the media but also from the report it was basically two or three bad actors from a college Democrats chapter so I think the other thing that as a personal gripe I'm like people keep conflating college Democrats in Massachusetts with like a specific uh, college Democrats unit, like this was the college, that would be like if something happened in Massachusetts and then Josh, Josh, the president of YDA got blamed for it, like very separate entities, but it was effectively, you know, two bad actors. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that these are all young people involved, very young people, people who are under, you know, just, you know, some of them had just turned 21. A lot of them are, you know, late teens, very, you know, obviously 20, late teens, um, and if you're in charge of a youth organization and you hear a couple of our members are uncomfortable, you, you believe them. A lot of these, these members from College Democrats are members of the LGBT community themselves and they, their, their friends told them we're uncomfortable. And so they said, okay, we're gonna act in abundance of caution. Um, and again, they went to party leadership, state party leadership for help and were just completely let down. And I, I think the, you know, you can look at this, this scandal as its own event, but I think the bigger issue is the trust now between youth Democrats. I was like, what if there was a problem with YDMA, in YDMA and myself, or, you know, when I was president or Leslie Curley's president, this whole event signals to us that we can't go to the party for help. It signals that we can't trust the party to help us if we, we need advice or we're in a time of crisis. And I think that to me is the bigger, the bigger takeaway. It's like, um, Again, Alex was, um, he didn't do anything wrong. Um, again, there's a few bad actors in college gems and, and it was escalated very quickly. And there's a lot of reasons why in terms of their own structure, but they were acting in an abundance of caution. They went to the party leadership to help them. Party leadership gave them, again, as I said, at best horrific advice and just used terrible judgment with them, which is not fit for leadership. And at worst, was malicious and trying to sway a race, which again is not fit for leadership. Did I make any sense? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, actually, I mean, you did. A crummy situation, and somebody was deeply opportunistic about it. And I mean, 
the message that sends going forward seems like it's going to be a pretty negative one. I mean, you're, you're talking about the relationship between the state party and a lot of the youth-based organizations, but God knows what it's going to be like for any more openly gay activists who want to run for higher positions. Yeah. And again, I don't, I don't believe that Gus is a, is a, I don't think he's a bad person. He's, he's been very nice to me. I don't believe he's homophobic, but intent, in, intent is not the same as impact. And, you know, again, young people were coming to him for help and were effectively, I mean, imagine being just turning 21, you do what you think is, the, is best for your members. You know, you're like, okay, we're gonna, you know, you guys told me you're uncomfortable, so I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna try and help you. You know, you're doing all of this out of earnest. Like I know some people involved, they're, they're not bad people. They're trying to protect their members. And then someone who's been in politics says, okay, here's how you do it. And then all of a sudden the story breaks you're getting hounded by the media. You're getting calls off the, you know, getting called constantly. And you're like, it, meanwhile, COVID's happening. You're like, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm always particularly um, protective of our very young members in politics because they're, they have not been in this for 30, 40 years. And I mean, neither have I, but I'm in my thirties and I, I just have a very different outlook on politics. And um, I don't know. I just, I was very, I'm very protective of our younger members because one, we, we should be protecting them. And two, we want them to have positive feelings towards the Democratic Party so that they stay involved and remain in the Democratic Party. So that is the brouhaha of where, I, for me, this went from a, a chairs race between, I don't think this guy's great at his job because I don't think he raises enough money and we've lost, we've lost registered Democrats in Massachusetts. Like, which is ridiculous over the last four years, which during a Trump administration is absurd. We should be skyrocketing with people registering as Democrats. And the fact that we've lost, I think 50,000, um, you know, we, we are still, yes, a deeply blue state, but that is absurd. Like that, that to me is like, we're not raising is, enough money. Is it like uh, that there's been a rise also in Republicans with like, and also like seeing MAGA hats and all that, or is it's, it? It's a lot. So this is where I go back to the purpose of the party. Um, it's you can still vote. You know, we have open primaries. So it's like I know New York is closed primaries, but we have open primaries. So there's not a reason like why join the Democratic Party if I can just be un unenrolled. I'm not, you know, especially now, like why? Like what's the, you know, not a what's the difference, but we're not giving we're not giving constituents constituents of the state a reason to want to be a Democrat. Like to me, when someone does it, when people are not registering as Democrats, it's not a I don't really know, to be honest, the Republican numbers. They're the only reason we're still deeply blue. I mean, there's a lot of reasons and I can get into that, but like part of it is like the complete mismanagement of the Republican party <laughs> in Massachusetts. Like mass GOP is, is its own mess. They just keep losing rate. Like they're, they're, they're awful. They're awful on many, many levels, like both from a moral and ethics standpoint, but also just from like a tactical standpoint, they just, um, but we have a Republican governor. So you know, that comes back into play. Um, but yeah, so to me, there's like, we're not raising enough money. He hasn't raised as much money as previous chairs. In fact, it's he's raised, I think, half of what the previous chairs have raised. We're losing Democratic voters. And his argument is, well, I win elections. And so this goes back to what is the purpose of the Democratic, Massachusetts Democratic Party? He's like, I win elections. And yes, we, we definitely have a, I mean, when he started, we had this, but we have a supermajority in our state legislature. So we have a, in our state house and state senate, we have a very, it's very blue. Um, and he's like, I won elections. And my, my response is, yeah, but you lost the biggest one, which was the governor's race. <laughs> so like, yes, you won the, we won, we have a supermajority, but 
we lost the one that I feel like the party is actually most responsible for, which is a statewide governor's race. Um, and so, okay, we've have a super majority. Again, what is the purpose of our party? What are we doing with that? Well, I have a super majority. You know, that we, we have a super majority so we can pass our platform. Like that's why we have a super majority. We have a super majority so that all these things that we at democratic platform conventions are working towards, all the activists are working towards, all these organizations who are really amplifying the voices of people who are not being heard, it's all put in that platform. And that's what Democrats should be advocating for um, on Beacon Hill. That's what they should be working towards. And we've passed very little legislation from that. Like, I, I know like we have someone from New York and someone from Kansas. So maybe I'm sounding very spoiled right now, but like, I really believe Massachusetts is in a position where we could, we're in a position where we can be leading the democratic party and being like, hey, look at what Massachusetts, look at cool progressive things Massachusetts is doing. Um, I'm kind of jealous that Calif like the West Coast is doing that stuff. California, like Washington, Oregon. Like I want to be the state that's doing those cool things. Um, and I keep saying cool, and I realize we're all political nerds. It's really progressive things, but to me, they're cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, really no, you, no, you, yeah, like, no, I think uh, Webster's next edition is going to have uh, cool C political. <laughs> Which is the best kind of cool, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, we have. Not, I will fight them. <laughs> so we have this super majority unclear what we're doing with it. And, um, you know, it's been really the work of grassroots organizations outside the Democratic Party who've been really pushing for the Safe Communities Act um, to ensure that, um, uh, you know, it make sure that people who are not citizens can like get like, uh, sorry, um, undocumented immigrants can get driver's licenses, like all these things that really our party should be pushing for. It's because of the really incredible grassroots network around Massachusetts that has been pushing that. Um, and so it's, you know, I'm still, to be honest, relatively new to Massachusetts politics. And it's been really fun to come in with both a sense of authority. I mean, authority is not the right word, but like- a For the record, which state are you originally from? I'm from New York originally. <laughs> it's, it's been so we have three original New Yorkers really on this call. Excited. I haven't lived in New York since I was four. Though? So? I was born in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. But yes, this is what, when you talk about your state enough, Seamus will find a way to try to tie it back into New York. Because <laughs> I'm sure your experience with this having, you know, spent however many years in Massachusetts now, New Yorkers have a complex. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole, I'm, I'm not done venting. <laughs> yeah, no, go ahead. Well, it starts also with our bagels. interruption was about. So I love how everyone's been like, I was in this, like, I wanted to be on this, this podcast for like really interesting conversation and back and forth. And it's like, it's just Rebecca yelling for 45 minutes straight. <laughs> We're cool with this, you know? Yeah. Like, trust me, we've been host to people who needed to do that a few times now. Mm -hmm. And there are some episodes wherein basically we know it's not going to be a good episode. And this is like, not one of them. So. I don't believe you, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, we have, so I think this goes back to what is the purpose of our party? The first thing is what is the purpose of our party? And to me, it's to be, it's our platform. The purpose of the Massachusetts party, it's, it's to elect Democrats in order to enact the platform. 
Um, and Mike Lake, who is the person I was backing for chair, we've, we've had a lot of fun conversations. And one of them, he's like, he's like the ba- he's like the best thing you could probably do in Massachusetts is to be like run as a Democrat because you can do whatever you want once you're in this, once you're elected. We're not going to push the platform on you. There's there's a Democrat. Um, her name is Colleen Gary. She's a state house representative. She is a more conservative voting record than the Republicans in the state house. So like. <laughs> And no one holds her accountable to the fact that your voting record is more conservative than the Republicans. Like, you're not a Democrat at that point. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one for purity tests, but I'm like, I feel like that's a pretty good one. Like, <laughs> if, you have all the, if you have the Republican votes and she's always caucusing with the Republicans, like, that's a pretty good indication. I feel like you guys, like a state like Massachusetts is definitely more in a position than say we are in Kansas to have, you know, people who want to get elected, but they're definitely more in line with the Republican Party still just slapping the Democrat name on. We've had more progressive people who have run as Republicans in the state for that purpose. They usually get sniffed out and lose their primaries, but it's been attempted many times. (laughs) We had a, there is a a town with a big labor base uh, called Hutchinson, which is in in the middle of Kansas. It's kind of, kind of a swing area. Now it's, it's a pretty purple County. Um, but just because of the labor base, it's one of the places out there where Democrats can still run somewhat safely. Um, for a long time, I won't say the person's name because at this point, well, they actually died a while ago and it just feels disrespectful, but they ran as a Democrat because that gave them the labor support, but we're deeply socially conservative and let's say had a nasty time anytime they came to state party functions but that was such a novelty for us. And I have to imagine it happens a lot more often in Massachusetts. Yes, I think it's, I don't think our legislators are, are bad legislators. I think it's that they could be doing so much more. We have this supermajority. What are we doing with it? Like, I, 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 it's unfortunate because I, I feel like Democrats do, we're always in a place of fear. I think like we've been that way for a long time, but I think 2016 has scarred us so, so much. We really function of a place of fear of like, whatever power we do have, no matter how little it is, we cannot lose it. We like need to hold onto it and grasp onto it as hard as we can. And our, it's like taking very conservative, um, not conservative positions, but like conservative ways of making change because they're just so terrified that any, you know, any movement we make is gonna scare people off. Uh, my, my friend, uh, John Cohen always says Massachusetts where people want progress, but no change. <laughs> That's the way to describe our state. People always talk about the progress they want, but they don't want any changes to happen, which is, as you can tell, very problematic. Um, so like I was saying, the purpose of our party, I believe, you know, if we were in, if I lived in Wisconsin, I'd have, a, you know, Charles and I have talked about this. I'd have a very different viewpoint on the purpose of the party, but we already have a super majority. So like, what is the purpose of our party? If we've achieved the mission to a certain level, you know, the other one being the governor's, um, the governor's office we want, what's the purpose of our party? So it's to me really, it's pushing that platform, making sure we're, the, we're holding the electeds accountable to what the activists have put into the platform. And then, so what does the chair's role fill into that? Well, the chair's role to me is one, winning that governor's race, which again, if you're running on I win elections and you lost the biggest one, that, that's actually, I love bringing this up and Seamus, you'll like this. It's like when the Giants and the Patriots went to the Super Bowl back in, what was it, 2008, 2007, yeah. maybe? Two, whatever that was, 2008, um, and the Patriots were- 11 undefeated, and one. <laughs> had an undefeated season. Or, 
it was I think 18 and one had an undefeated season Something and like then they that, lost yeah. the Super Bowl. It's, it's the equivalent of that. It's, it's kind of winning everything, but not kind of the biggest one that matters. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. to, at least for the state party. I feel like that's the big one that matters. And the chair's role in that is like, again, raising money, making sure that we have a lot of, you know, we need registered Democrats because it, it helps us with canvassing. Like it, it just from like a really tactical level helps with canvassing and phone banking and the kind of outreach we're doing. Um, and I think it's also giving, a, giving the party a vision. Like you're in an executive leadership role. You need to, you need to give a vision to people. You're, you're a leader who needs to inspire the Democrats of your state and saying, this is what we're doing. This is what we're working for. I want you on my team. Are you with me? Like that's what leadership is all about. It's being decisive. It's creating a vision for people and make sure people are behind that vision. Um, and right now the chair is saying, I, my vision is I'm going to keep electing more Democrats to the state house and state Senate. Well, like and that. one of those things where it's like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And I'll give a hot take here. If we had not won the presidency this year, Tom Perez would not be chair come January. I still don't think he's going to be chair. In I mean, I, well, no, I don't think he's no, like running for it because basically, uh, President elect Biden. Yeah, yeah, President elect Biden is going to choose the next chair. But if had we had lost, then there would just not be an, another oh, chair Perez. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, because he was he, like that's the big one. Mm-hmm. Now, and I mean, obviously, I was like in Ro- in like Rona. Romney McDaniel. I make sure to always put in the her maiden <laughs> name. She's not going to be chair. Like uh, apparent, and rumor has it that apparently Donald Trump Jr. and um, Kimberly Guilfoyle are looking for roles in the RNC. Well, Donald Trump Jr. also got the Rona yesterday, so he might be taking a little break. I don't know. Can you be the chair from jail? Many things are possible. There'll be an RNC prison caucus. <laughs> You're well, to you can be mayor of DC in jail. True. <laughs> now, Rebecca, I mean, since your chair is still pretty hyper fixated on the legislature, um, I mean, I. I don't really know that much about Charlie Baker, just, you know, living in Kansas. I just kind of see what makes national news. How well does he work with legislative Democrats? I mean, obviously it's not going to be perfect. He's a Republican, but. So you want my hot take on it? Absolutely. Okay. So Charlie Baker, first of all, is extremely high approval rating amongst Democrats. He is, he is more popular with Democrats than Republicans in Massachusetts. Hmm. That is a problem. That means that Massachusetts, like Massachusetts party is not, or the Democratic Party in Massachusetts is not showing clearly why he is not a good leader. And there's plenty of reasons why. First of all, he did it for the second time, he did not vote for president. You are the you are an executive an executive leadership role in a state and you don't know how, who to vote for president. I can't trust you with any other decision. Like if you don't know, like straight up, <laughs> straight up blanked it. Second, second time, he did it in 2016 and he did it again in 2020. And I have no patience for, like, this is my big thing. Uh, I'm probably in trouble for NYDA for this. I really hate when people abstain from voting because I feel like people elect you to make decisions. And, um, you know, I think there are definitely reasons why people abstain from a conflict of interest standpoint, which I think is really important. But for him to blank for two presidential elections in a row, who to vote for for president, I'm like, how can anyone trust this man to make any other decisions? 
Um, and I posted a quote from um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt that's like, the best decision you can make is the right one. The next best decision you can make is the wrong one. But the worst decision you can make is no decision at all, which is literally what he does. The hot take I have is that I actually think what people don't realize is that the most powerful person when it comes to legislation in Massachusetts is our Speaker of the House. And so by having a Republican governor, he is the most, um, he is now the most, he, for the, I mean, since Baker has been in office, is the most powerful person when it comes to legislation, um, as opposed to, um, you know, if we, had a, if we had a Democratic governor, they would be kind of deciding the, where we'd be going. But um, I think the relationship's a little too cozy. That, that's my, my hot take. How, like, okay, so just to continue allowing you to go on the hot takes, <laughs> How is it that he seen that the governor seems to be more popular among your party than his? Like that that boggles my mind. Um, because Charlie Baker's not stupid. He knows okay. that we're not a, a like even the I mean, the, yes, there are people who are big Trump people in Massachusetts, but in general, it's it's more the like I still have issues with people who say this, but like more the like oh I'm socially liberal, fiscally conservative type, and that's how they view Charlie Baker. So it, the Republic, I mean, even the Republicans, there's one Republican um, in the, I mean, he won re-election and now a recent vote has been very frustrating. Um, there's a couple of Republicans who are pro-choice. Like there, it's a, it's still even among, it's not deeply red, you know, you, you don't have, so like, however, mass GOP is very Trumpy. Like Jim Lyons, who um, he was ousted from the state house from this amazing woman, Trump, Representative Trump Wynn, who beat him. Um, she beat an incumbent when he lost his job. Um, he got hired by mass GOP. He got hired. He was voted as mass GOP chair. Um, he is like just an old man Trump. Like he's, he's really into Trump. Although, and Charlie Baker, again, he canvassed for him. Like he was like, there's images of him like canvassing. So like, I think Democrats have not done a good enough job of demonstrating not just why Charlie Baker is like, he's not this, he's just flat out, not a good leader. And again, he can't make decisions like coronavirus, like COVID is spiking again in Massachusetts. And, you know, Massachusetts has been relatively okay, not great. I mean, but partly it's because we're a highly educated state. So I don't think we have a ton of like, there's not a lot of people saying like COVID's a, you know, fake news kind of thing. People are wearing masks. Like culturally, it's a well-educated state. We're also very Puritan. So people just don't touch each other a lot. So there's a lot of things going in Massachusetts' favor with COVID, but he's not doing anything. Like he we should be having another lockdown soon. We're spiking and he's just not doing things. And it's like, to me, every decision he's made regarding COVID is just not the right one. Like we should have had a long, like he keeps opening stuff up and I'm like, what are you doing? We're spiking. Um, that's a whole other thing I could go yeah. go Which, on about. It's but. interesting you bring this all up because so a few months ago, this is before COVID, I had to uh, read a book for a class I was taking in state intergovernmental politics by Johnny McDonough, who is a former um, member of the Massachusetts House. Uh, it's called Experiencing Politics, Legislators' uh, Stories of Government and Healthcare. And so he was like chair of the health committee and all that. And so back, this back in like the 90s. And at the time, Charlie Baker was, I think like, let's say he was like insurance or like the insurance um, commissioner or something like that. Uh, for whoever the governor was back then and basically it was a lot of healthcare decisions that were just basically being done on the side of like the healthcare companies and stuff and now it is nowadays it's sort of like uh well 
healthcare companies, they've really sort of weirdly stepped up to the plate because I guess they realize that they can't make any money if everyone's dead. But well, as a side thing, health insurance companies are mm-hmm. making a ton of money during COVID because people mm-hmm. are not going to the hospital. So people are not going to the hospital unless they're unless they have COVID, and because they're not going to the hospital, they're not filing claims. So insurance is making out like bandits during COVID. Providers are always getting screwed in our healthcare system. I firmly believe that. But health insurance right now is making out like bandits. Mm-hmm. But so it's just one of those things where you would think that maybe Charlie Baker would just like sort of just take whatever the orders are from the insurance companies, but maybe over the past thirty years he's grown up, but maybe not. Well, this brings me to my third point about, okay, so Gus, how did Gus get reelected? I've like laid out all these reasons why, you know, we need a new chair, not just because I, you know, again, if it was just, I didn't think it was great at his job, I wouldn't feel so strongly about it. I'd just be annoyed. And like, there's plenty of primaries that annoy me, but this, I feel like is a systemic issue. So it goes back to the structure of the Massachusetts Democratic Party and how Gus got reelected. So Um, The history of Massachusetts Democratic State Committee is that um, we have originally started with 80 members and it was ballot seats from all the 40 Senate districts, one male, one female from each Senate district. Um, They expanded that to 160 and they did two ballot seats per district and then two caucus seats per district. And the reason why being that for our, um, they felt like ballot seats became very name recognition as opposed to they wanted the caucus seats, which is the people who were like doing the grassroots activist work. So they had the ballot, which might be more leaning towards like the name, but then they had the caucus seat where like, these are the activists doing the work and those are elected by the t- uh, town and ward committees within that senatorial district or state Senate district. Um, so that's 160 people right there. They found that people were kind of holding onto these seats for a really long time. <laughs> so, you know, you had these 160 seats, it was, I'm going to make this assumption, which I'm pretty sure is right, skewing very right, or sorry, skewing um, very white, (laughs) Um, potentially right, uh, in sense of like right-wing politics, Um, but it was skewing very white, it was skewing older, and you know, I think, I just want to make it really clear, I think it's really, really important there's an intergenerational mix, like you need, you need the breadth of the constituency, and that includes age as well. So you had this, you know, older, whiter population representing Massachusetts, and it wasn't, they wanted new people in these seats. So what they did was they created um, the lifetime members, which I don't know if any other state has this, but in Massachusetts, if you're on the state committee for 20 years, you become a lifetime member, meaning you are no longer elected by anyone. You are just automatically for life on the DNC after 20 years of service um, on the DS, on the Democratic State Committee. So... So like super delegates. One might call them that. (laughs) So, I mean, is there like, what sort of accountability is there for people who have seats like that and then don't participate? Funny you should ask. Let me, let me round out how the party is structured. (laughs) (laughs) So you have, so what ended up happening was they created these 20 year seats. I actually do believe they created them with good intentions. They wanted to open up they wanted to open up ballot and caucus seats. They didn't want people having them for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. They wanted more people running. They wanted newer blood in these seats. Um, but obviously you have these lifetime seats and I, I don't know how long they've been doing it, but pe- more and more people are getting to the 20 year mark. And we're now at the point where we have 80 ballot seats, 80 caucus seats and 150 lifetime members. And then what they created also after that was they created add-on seats. And that's basically because Again, the party tends to be very white and older. 
And so they're like, we need to make sure we're accounting for all the constituencies across um, Massachusetts. And there's about 109 um, of those seats. And it's, um, you know, there's affirmative action seats, LGBT seats, there's some youth seats, some college seats. Um, there's some senior seats. Um, there's, <laughs> so there's a breadth of seats. There's, um, you know, Portuguese speaking, French speaking, uh, you know, there's a swath of these add-on seats to ensure that we have not just an older and whiter party representing the state. Um, and there's also a couple of random seats in the, like, call, like YDMA is, has two reps. You know, there's a couple other things there. So that is why we have the second largest state party in the country, um, even though we are not um, the second largest state population wise. <laughs> so that is why we have 432 members. California is the only one bigger than us. California is also a much larger state than us, but that's why we have such a big seat. So come election night for electing our chair, um, Gus wins um, first ballot. It's a plurality vote. So if there was a second ballot, it would have been very different, but it means that he won first ballot, meaning he got the plurality of the vote. Um, and uh, I think I wrote this, but like almost half of his vote, about 48, 49% of his vote came from lifetime members. Um, and so when you asked, what's the accountability to these lifetime members, Right now, the only accountability we have is um, only recently, as of like a year or two ago, we instituted, you need to show up to, I think, eight meetings within your, within every four years. And otherwise you're going to get kicked out. You're going to lose your seat. Um, so what ended up happening was, you know, of these 150 members, um, of these lifetime members who voted for Gus, 16%, I was, I was doing all the fun trends, 16% of them had not attended a meeting in the last four years. Um, so they showed up and, you know, I don't know if that's a significant, a statistically significant number, but it's enough to show you that there were people who came, who had not been involved at all for four years and just came to vote. Um, and I think the part that upsets me the most about this is one, um, you know, taking a step back when, when I was calling people, you know, we're calling people and trying to be like, why are you voting for Gus? One, they're like, well, I don't believe the report. There was this independent investigation done to be honest. And if you look at the, who investigated it, she had more bias towards Gus and, and Jim, who's the um, party lawyer, but like, um, it was not the, she had a, she was very, uh, the concern was she was biased um, and she would be favoring him, but she had a pretty, her report basically said he broke the bylaws um, and then he effectively lied to the state committee and people, the response was, well, I think he does a good job, which as I laid out before, he doesn't. Um, I think he does a good job and I feel like um, I don't believe the report. So it's like reading the Mueller report and being like, I don't believe the report. It's like you weren't part of those interviews. You're not a lawyer. <laughs> like you don't, so people, and you know, there's a bigger, an even bigger issue, which is they're only thinking about this little race, this one race, but by reelecting Gus, it is sending the message to people across the state that it's okay to, to, to break our bylaws. It's okay to, to break our rules. Um, and it's okay that we're ignoring what, you know, this has been a really unusual chairs race because mostly chairs races kind of fly under the radar. Like most people don't care. Most people are not involved in the democratic state committee. They're not like who cares who the chair is which is its own problem. But a lot of small donor, you know, we as a party depend on small donors and we depend on grassroots activists and they wanted him gone. Like people who are grassroots activists across the state were emailing and calling their um, Democratic State Committee members saying, please don't vote for Gus. Um, for people who are in a, a ballot and caucus seat or an add-on seat, that's, that's going to make a difference, but does it matter to a lifetime member? 
there's no consequence if they receive that call. Um, so, you know, the bigger issue being we as a party have now sent the message. We don't listen to our grassroots activists. We don't listen to our small dollar donors. We're not We don't care what youth voters or youth uh, voters in the DNC, DSC voted primarily um, for either uh, Mike or Bob. It was like 86%. We're not listening to the LGBT community. Again, they were 75% and they were very upset. Um, and we're not listening to new members. New members wanted new leadership. We're not listening to people of color on the Democratic State Committee. They wanted, majority of them wanted new leadership. Um, it's, it's the bigger picture is our party is sending this message across the state that we we're not listening and we don't care. And it, it makes us, it makes the party look out of touch. There were also other shenanigans on that call that are just beyond embarrassing, but, um, you know, that's why I'm upset. And when people talk about the establishment, I'm like, what's the establishment? I'm like, I'm technically part of the establishment. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of getting it. <laughs> I'm kind of getting, we talk about the establishment, what we mean. You're getting oh, where you have an actual establishment that you can point to and not just like <laughs> for people who don't vote with you. Yeah, because there, there are, you know, Massachusetts is kind of some interesting political dynasties. Like I think when people think political dynasty, they think Kennedy. Um, but when I think political dynasty, like I think, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, her law students are now running for office. Michelle Wu is a city councilor who's now running for, for mayor of Boston. Um, Katie Porter, who's the congresswoman out of California, was a student of Elizabeth Warren. Like, there are these really cool dynasty, like, I don't even know if dynasty is the right word, but like... Um, it's like a tree of influence. Yeah, it's like a tree of influence. Like, um, Maura Healy's our uh, attorney general, or sorry, our... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She's, she's the state... AG. Yeah. 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 Okay. I got the right word. She yeah. has people who she's like her proteges are like Lydia Edwards, who's a ward a city councilor out of um, district two, who like, I'm assuming might run for higher office one day. I hope she does. Like these are proteges of these people. So um, there's establishment in that way, but that's really to me very exciting. Like these like new trees developing, <laughs> but yeah, there's an establishment we can now point to and as members of the Democratic State Committee who, you know, I'm a, I'm a ballot seat. Like I'm held, I, I mean, to be honest, I'm probably not gonna get my seat again for a litany of reasons, but like I'm held accountable by my district. And, um, you know, it's, it's frustrating when there's like a group of people who are not, who, there's no way to get rid of them and get account held accountable by the constituency of our state. So I have a question. You said that uh, the vote was by plurality how is it that that's like not violative of Robert's rules? Like wouldn't it doesn't, or is it like, it's one of those things that's in your uh, uh, state committee bylaws? That... I think it's in our bylaws and charter. There's been a lot of discussion around, should we do ranked choice voting? Like, but like it's in our, it's in our charter that it's like, you need to get 50% plus one of- Oh, that's, that's majority, not plurality. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, it's majority. Okay. Apologies, it's majority. Wait, did I say if it was if it was plurality, then it would be like obviously a majority of people do not want you, which Oh, my my I'm sorry. Yeah, which it was it was you need to get fifty percent plus one of the vote. Why did I keep being told it's plurality? Anyway, I'm really sorry, but I yeah. Just... yeah, but then that because yeah, no, it's that was just me hearing that all this, that was just even more shocking because if it's plurality, then it's just like obviously everyone else the majority of the 
room wants someone else to be leading, which is even worse of a situation. Well, the majority of the room did want him. So of the 40, I think there were about 380 votes cast of the 432, maybe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, He he got the 50 plus one he needed to win. He got over 200, get like 220 something votes. Um, But I... I, w- I think my frustration comes from there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger, um, it's not just this chairs race. It's everything that this chairs race represented. And again, it's not, I don't think Gus is a bad person, but it's like, you know, one of the, someone asked me like, well, how, like when you lay out the evidence, how come he won? And I said, it's because it's really hard to beat a 20 year friendship. Like there's 150 lifetime members. There are other Democratic state, you know, there's caucus and ballot seats. They've known Gus for a really, really long time. They've known him for 10, 20, 30 years. It is very difficult to beat a friendship like that. Like, it doesn't matter what evidence you lay out, it's hard to beat a friendship. And when people ask me, why, why does it feel like the DNC doesn't like get, have it together? And I say, because... I'm assuming every state's like that. I'm assuming a lot of states are mm-hmm. based on 20 year friendships. And it's not, it's not that these, that I'm saying people are malicious. It's just people making your decisions very much based on relationships and emotion, which is a lot of what politics is. It's like, I mean, most politics is, is relationships and emotion. Yeah, very much. Um, uh-huh. And when they elect their DNC rep, you know, they're electing people like, I've worked with you and known you for 20, 30 years. Yeah, I'll vote for you. Like you can't beat that. That's impossible to beat. Um, and then you're, you know, you end up with a DNC group composed of that. And, you know, again, I don't think people are malicious. I think people really do want good things for the party, but you know, that that's sort of like what we end up with. Like we don't have for better or worse, like Carl Robes in the party. Like we don't have, sure. like, <laughs> we don't have people who are very like ends justify the means. We have people who've like, you know, we have the people who we elect are like, I've been part of the Democratic State Committee for a really long time. I do a lot of, I know my neighbor, you know, I know my ward and town committee really well. I, um, I'm doing a lot of, I host all these phone banks. I do all the canvassing. And that's really, really important and really great. But when we think about taking the party to the next level, when we get to the national level, it's got to be more around like strategy and winning and implementation of once we've won, what are we doing to ensure we like keep the wins, but also like implementing the things that we are fighting for. Because again, it's not just about winning races. It's about implementing the changes we want to see in our country. Um, so that's me ranting about what happened and why I was very upset. Because again, it's not about the singular race or about this chairs race. It's about what the race, this chairs race represented um, when you think about the bigger picture of um, where we, want, where we want things to go and are we listening to, you know, the people we're trying, I mean, someone else wrote this, the people we're trying to excite are not excited because they look at this chairs race and see like, you know, that's not what excites me. That's not what gets me excited. That's not what makes me want to be a Democrat. So why be a Democrat? Why enroll in the party? Which is absolutely something that I think we see off and on on the national level. I mean, you know, obviously our focus today is on what's been going on in Massachusetts and kind of the uh, the struggles there. Lord knows, I see similar things happen in Kansas. And, you know, we're, we're reorganizing all of our counties right now and our state party uh, in a couple of months. And that's something that I know a lot of us, especially within the Young Dems, are deeply concerned that our party's been dominated by the same sort of small group of retirees for a long time. 
and there is some deep concern that they don't really understand what the moment has been for progressives in Kansas and that that's going to hold us back long term. Um, and again, it's, I, I have, I think it's really, really important. We have an intergenerational mix. Like I think it only like innovation comes from a diversity of voices. If the party was all just like 20s and 30 somethings, like we, it would be a disaster. If it's all people, <laughs> if it was all people over 70, it would be a disaster. Like we, we need to utilize the, like we have five generations working together right now. Like we need to take advantage of that. It's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Like we have all this institutional knowledge. We have like all, like we just have new ideas, institutional knowledge. Like we should be working together super well. And um, it's upsetting when it feels like, you know, someone, it's upsetting when it feels like what happened to mentorship? And I'm like, mentorship isn't telling me what to do. Mentorship is like working together. Um, Cause you know, I posted those stats and people got upset. You know, people don't, you know, and then someone asked me, I was talking to a reporter and I said, they're like, do you see, do you think change is going to happen? And I said, the first step to me and why I posted all those statistics on my Facebook page was people need to be aware of how the party is structured, how the party works and how the party votes. And once that information comes to light and there's transparency and light is shed on it, then there's going to be more demands for change and more measures are gonna be created to create that change. Like, you know, activists in town and work, there's, there's a bit of a still a separation between what happens in the Democratic State Committee and what happens in the town and ward level in those Democratic committees. Um, but like change is gonna happen the more we shed light on how these things work. And this to me is just the first big step was like this chair's race was much more high profile than people expected. And the numbers of the, the votes, the structure of the party became, people didn't know we had lifetime members. That's now a thing that people know, but they didn't know that before. How people voted is now very public and people are interested. You know, people are sharing attendance records. Like there's, there's more um, interest and transparency around what's happening, which is again, the first step to really creating bigger change. So where do you think like uh, the party goes from here? Like, do you think it's more of trying to raise awareness of these issues? Is it try to maybe primary or uh, run against these uh, older folks to try to take uh, take things over? Uh, what do you think should be the next steps? So I think for next steps, there are still a good contingent of people within the party that do want to see change, and and we show up to meetings. So at the end of the day, like we, we were, we're the ones who come to the meetings. So like you can show up, you can show up once a year to vote for chair, but ultimately like we're you know we're showing up. Um, uh, we're showing up to the meetings and wanting to make change. I think there's a big opportunity for young Democrats in Massachusetts to really fill in a gap that the party doesn't have. Like I've talked to Leslie a lot about this. There's going to be a gap forming where young Dems can really fill that. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we've discussed internally, like, I think there's a certain feeling of separation we want from the party right now, because we're like, we, we are not happy. Like Leslie signed that letter with me. We posted on Facebook of like, we are not happy with this. We're not okay with Gus running for re-election and we're not okay, like obviously he won, we're not okay with that. So I think there's opportunity for young Dems to fill that role. Um, and I think there's really opportunity for, again, Massachusetts is blue because of all the great work happening between the, amongst activists and like town and ward committees, but also other activist groups outside the Democratic party. And I think it's really working with like the people who want change working with those groups to say like, how can we make change within the party? Like, how can we utilize, like, what can we do to help you? You're already doing 
so much incredible work. How is we as the quote unquote establishment help you? Um, and then how can, you know, what kind of changes do we need to start making internally and working with them to help make those changes? Um, you know, it's a long fight. I think, it, I'm sure it's a fight that's been happening for, for decades. Um, and someone made a comment to me and said, I'm sure in 30, 40, 50 years, you're gonna say those darn kids, they're crazy. And, and I wrote back, I said, it's really irrelevant, my opinion of what young people do in the future. Like if, if I am, you know, 60, 70, and I have, you know, I'm very like set in my ways and I'm like these young kids, um, it's irrelevant what I think because whether I like it or not, they're the future of the party. And so to me, when people say they're upset with what young people are doing, I'm like, it's irrelevant what your feelings are on young people because whether you like it or not, they are the future of the party. And you have two choices. You either work with them and make the party stronger or you ignore them and just divide the party and make it harder for us to keep, to do what we want to do in this country. Um, so I think it's what changes can we, you know, who do we need to work with from a grassroots level? Um, what, like we as the progressive members within the state party can start thinking about like, what are the measures we can take on the subcommittees? Um, I think there's a lot of planning and strategy that needs to happen. And right now we're still, you know, I think that vote was just very like frustrating. Um, and I think we're just trying to like get through Thanksgiving, help Georgia with more to come, by the way, please wait for my emails coming out this week about that. <laughs> how, we, how we can help Georgia in a way that doesn't, that actually helps them, doesn't overwhelm them. Um, so I think there's a lot to do and, you know, you have to be endlessly optimistic in politics. I mean, you can be a deeply cynical person, but you have to be optimistic in your belief that you can make things better in order to be in, working in politics. So I think that's sort of where I, I'm a deeply cynical person, but like, I'm still in this because I'm like, I believe we can do something. I believe we can, I believe we can make change that's good and positive and benefits everyone. I feel that hard. I mean, that is, I'm not going to speak for Seamus. I know that is 100% the outlook I always have to remind myself of when I'm frustrated by internal party politics, because I often am. I mean, within my state's party, within YDA, there have never not been things that I haven't been annoyed by. Um, and you just have to remind yourself that you're doing this for something bigger than the other wonks and the people that are in the rooms with you that are not operating in the way that you think is ideal. You didn't get involved to impress them. You did it to better society. And sometimes it means finding ways to mitigate those people or, you know, sort of nudge them out, sometimes gently, sometimes firmly. Yeah. I mean, and that requires a lot of patience and sometimes chronic alcoholism. <laughs> I'm a bit, I mean, I don't drink much anymore, which is maybe a bad time, but. Uh, You're a white yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm like, I'm such a. I mean, I'm just too old for that. I mean, this is gonna be my last, you know, I can't run again. Like I'm, I'm 34. I, it, it's, I don't know. I, I feel, like, I know. Um, Which also, we, I think I'm not, I don't want to speak for Ben here, but I think you also have probably the most patience of anyone in YDA. <laughs> definitely. I mean, you have to with the shit you put up with. I feel like you guys didn't see me like, you don't see the text I send, like as I'm smiling on the Zoom calls or like as I'm smiling, mm -hmm. taking notes, you're not seeing like the angry texts I'm seeing like, like why is this meeting still going? <laughs> we haven't, um, you have to do that, but I think everyone assumed you would be and we're all <laughs> feeling very similar thing. We also but, know that you're the one that has to be, you know, keeping track of shit people are saying and keeping minutes and, you know, sorting out the mire from the actual content. 
I will say though, one of the things I do, I think people, I think people conflate length of YDA meetings with like, that's why I'm frustrated. And it's not, it, I don't get frustrated by that. I actually, if meetings are going long because a lot of people have things to say, but we're following some semblance of order, that's mm-hmm. fine. Like I want, I want people to feel like they can go to a YDA meeting and speak. We just need, we use Robert's rules. I mean, I know people get upset. We don't use them to the T, but we use it as, as a sense of order so that everyone feels like they can speak. And the reason we break them slightly is because they're people who don't know Robert's rules and we want to make sure that they don't feel silenced. But you know, our last meeting minus about 45 minutes of that nine hour day, people were being, it was just people arguing about resolutions. Like, that's great. <laughs> like, I want people to be really nerding out over like resolutions we're trying to pass or like that to me is fine. I, um, it, cause to me, that's all coming from a good place. Like if we're having a marathon meeting because people are getting really heated about how we handle a resolution or a certain rule we want to pass, like that's why we're all here. I mean, I think we get too caught up in the rules, but um, like, I'm okay with that. And I can be really patient with that. I think it's when there's like bullshit happening where I'm like, are you trying to stall? <laughs> like, that's where I, I start getting, um, losing my patience. But I, I do try to put on a, a happy face or a happy-ish. Well, most of the so. <laughs> things that they are trying to do is stalling, like when we're in-person meetings, but then we see what happens when there is no flight that anyone has to catch. Oh, my God. <laughs> the, the freedom people feel in that because, hey, we're not about to be kicked out of a room that we paid for or everyone literally needs to get out. Otherwise, they're going to miss their flights and lose a few hundred bucks. Um, there, there are times where I'm thinking maybe that urgency is actually good for us. Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, frustrating, but. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny with YDA because people in the Democratic State Committee are like, you don't, you don't know how we work. And I'm like, I do though. Like I've been to a DNC meeting and I watched it happen. And I was with Mike Corbett at the time we were sitting together. And I was like, as the meeting was unfolding, I turned to Mike and I said, is this YDA? He's like, yeah, <laughs> it's the same. It's the same structure. It's the same, like the like little things that like, you're like, oh my God, like I'm getting flashbacks to our last meeting. Like it's, it's really surreal. Like, so, you know, because all these organizations are really structured similar to the DNC. So DNC is structured one way and therefore all the state committees are structured that way. And YDA is structured in parallel to how the DNC is structured. Um, and it, it's the same kind of personalities come out, the same kind of things, you know, we're trying to obviously accomplish different things. And, you know, the, the pro and con of YDA is like the huge benefit we have is that we all age out, which forces change. Like whether we like it or not, people are forced to change. I think the the hardest thing is we can lose some like really incredible institutional knowledge. Um, but um, it's, it's really funny. Like, I'm like, like, you don't know how we work. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I do. Like, yeah, maybe the people are different, but the structure, the personalities, the what people are trying to achieve and how they're achieving it, the, like grasping onto power that I'm like, what power are we holding on to? <laughs> um, it's all there. It's all, it's all the same. I think that's a, probably a good way to end the episode. I think so. Thanks for letting me vent for over an hour. You I hope I didn't, I didn't bore your listeners. They're going to be like, who is this nasally New Yorker who lives in Boston? And <laughs> uh, If you know some of the things that our listeners put up with generally, I think <laughs> you're going to be fine. They probably were happy to have you know some actual content and not just me and Seamus racing each other to make the first pun. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, people saying that it's a mood.
<laughs> Though it is often a mood, there there's some truth to that. Well, hopefully and I also an episode with no South Park and no Tiger King references. Damn it, Seamus, you just ruined really <laughs> this. <laughs> well, I hope people. I hope this shed light a little bit on why I've been having my like mental breakdown on Facebook, which I try not to do a lot, but I feel like I was having one. Um, but also, you know, I think the more people understand the structure of the Democratic Party the more they're gonna understand how we can make change in it. And that, that's what I ultimately wanted to come across. What I wanted to get across when I came on here was um, when we talk about this boogeyman establishment, um, there's actually a structure to it. And like, there's ways you can make change to create a new, more progressive establishment. Um, so yeah, thank you for having me on and letting me vent for definitely over an hour. There's a lot of talking, but I really appreciate it. I got a lot off my chest. I feel a lot better. We're glad. <laughs> like maybe this, uh, maybe our next like sort of theme in the podcast will be is like letting people vent. You know, I think we do a fair amount of that as it is, and I'm okay with it. I think it's healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks, Rebecca, for coming on. Uh, this has been a production of Dog Pack Incorporated. Uh, uh, our theme music is produced by Alexander Nakamura. I've been Seamus Campbell. I've been Ben Cohen. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.